everyone to our second season of Mildly Scandalous Takes on Humanity, otherwise known as MSTOH, as I like to call it. Um, hello, Yasmin. Hi, groups. It's very exciting to be back again once more sharing our takes with everyone. And I'm really excited because I think this season is going to be even better than our previous one. And just to preface our episode, we've recorded this in two different rooms. One of them has a sort of echoey sound and the other one doesn't. So we're really sorry if the sound quality is not consistent throughout, but please bear with us. This season, there's going to be a series of guest speakers who will feature throughout the season. And in this episode, we're really excited to invite the one and only Kinnery. Kinnery, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, I'm Kinnery. I go to school with Ali and Yasmin and two things about me. Firstly, I am a huge fan of Pride and Prejudice and of Jane Austen in general, which I will demonstrate at some point throughout this podcast, so be sure to listen out for that. And secondly is that I am very excited to be featuring in this podcast. Um, in this episode, we will be discussing all things inspired by Anna Karenina, which I finished reading over the summer. It got me thinking about the broad topic of morality and also of whether what Anna did was moral or immoral and selfish. But before we get into that, it's probably a good idea to explore what morality and selfishness are. All right, Kinnery and Yasmin, let's begin our episode. To start off with, we're going to talk about a trait I'm sure you all have, but whether that be good or bad, we shall discuss. And that trait is selfishness. So, Kinnery and Yasmin, what do you think? Are humans inherently selfish? And if so, is that necessarily a bad thing? Yes, I do think that humans are inherently selfish and everything we do is selfish because everything that we do is for some sort of benefit to ourself. Even seemingly altruistic actions like being kind to someone else still hold a benefit to you because it makes you feel better about yourself or it is good for someone that you really care about, which makes you happy again. Um, so ultimately, it is serving yourself. I kind of disagree though, because I think the whole point of the word selfish is that it does have these connotations. For example, I could be described as selfish if my friend asks me for a pencil. If I'm selfish by giving her the pencil, but I'm also selfish by not giving her the pencil because I'm trying to keep all my goods to myself, then is one action more selfish than the other? The word selfish loses meaning if everything we do is to be described as selfish, you know? And I do think there are instances where you can call someone just selfish purely. For example, if a parent constantly neglects their child and prioritizes their own well-being and their own career path, etc., over their over the well-being of their child, I think you can call that selfish because it directly goes against your well your responsibility as a parent, even though yes, obviously everyone is entitled to want the best for themselves. I get Yasmin's logic that if everything is selfish, nothing is selfish because, you know, everything is relative, is selfless, doesn't exist, and how can selfish exist? Um, but I think that people and actions can be selfish in different ways um so for example the benefit gotten from giving the pencil to your friend is making yourself happy um and the benefit gotten from not giving the pencil to your friend is that you get to keep the pencil so even though both actions are selfish the benefits are very different and i think the distinction between those actions is not necessarily that one is selfless and one is selfish um i think it is that one is morally selfish and the other is immorally selfish yeah i think that you're bringing in a question there which is is it selfish to want the best for yourself? And I personally don't think it's particularly selfish to want the best for yourself. If you don't, that's potentially an issue. However, when wanting the best for yourself comes at a loss to someone else's well-being, 
that's when it starts to become selfish in a negative way. I also think it can be considered selfish if it goes against a responsibility that you have, maybe either as a parent or if it's just, you know, a job you have. I think that's also quite selfish, especially coupled with the whole, does it harm anyone else around me? And usually if you're responsible for something, it will have a knock-on effect for everything and everyone you are responsible for. Yeah, definitely. I agree with both of you. And I think that basically sums up the answer to the question, to what extent is it moral to be selfish? The answer to which I think is that the if the net value of your action is a greater benefit to you than the disadvantage to the other person, then that is morally selfish. Um, because you're living for yourself and you have to do what's best for you. And if your action is going to cause harm to someone else, as long as the benefit is greater to you, then that is moral. However, if the disadvantage to the other person is greater than the benefit to you, then in that case that action is morally selfish. Yes, yes I've noticed that Kennery really likes looking at the net value of situations. And another interesting question is are there any things which are objectively morally correct? And when I first thought about this question I thought well yes equality. I believe that everyone should have equal rights and therefore anything anyone does in the way of equality must be objectively morally correct. But then I thought about when people use violence on the path to greater equality. For instance, we learned in history that the suffragettes would throw stones so that people would listen to their call for greater women's rights. And I started questioning, is this justified? Yes, on the one hand, you're helping make the world a better place. But on the other, you're really causing pain, not just to the people you're being violent against, but also you're causing a sort of emotional pain to their families. You know, a lot of these people probably have children. So I think it's interesting to consider whether acts of violence in the way of an honourable cause are totally morally justified. Yasmin, what, what do you think? All, I don't think there is such thing as objective moral correctness because to me, I think the fact that I get to vote as a woman is a great thing. And in some ways, I think, yeah. and in some ways, I do think it was justified because who knows? Like, we don't know what would have happened if they hadn't campaigned like that. But I also think that even things like kindness, you can't say those things are morally correct, objectively speaking, because there are definitely instances where being kind is not the morally right thing to do. For example, I don't know, I don't think any of us tried to stop, you know, Hitler, the fascist dictator, with kindness and kind words. Like, I don't think being kind in that instance would have been not just practical, but also morally incorrect when you see, like, the genocide that he's committed, you know? So the lesson I've taken from this is, don't be kind. So before we talked about how certain actions can have a net, you know, moral goodness or moral badness, but now we're moving on to inaction. Does that have any kind of moral net gain or is it just a complete flat out zero? Well, you can argue that doing nothing has the um, net value of zero because you are quite literally doing nothing. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. And I don't think it's um, always morally correct to abstain. I think not doing something can often have a negative effect. If you are abstaining, you are probably doing it to not offend either side. So the benefit to you is that you do not alienate anyone. But this benefit of staying in everyone's good graces is sometimes far less than the disadvantage to the other parties in 
involved. Sometimes the disadvantage can be the loss of lives, which which can be seen with countries not interfering in other wars, a prime example of which would be Switzerland. There are many, many more examples. Um, sure, by not entering the war, they didn't take any lives, but we have to take into consideration the lives that they could have prevented the loss of by joining the war. Now, I'm not sure where I stand on the debate of whether countries should stay neutral or not, but what I do know is that it is definitely not unequivocally true that doing nothing leads to no consequences and is therefore morally justifiable. Yeah, I agree that um, there's this conception that if you don't address a problem, the problem will go away. Or by not addressing a problem, you're being kind because you're not offending anyone, when actually this can have a much worse effect. Um, And one thing that really... Gets, gets to my skin is when people don't vote because they think that both candidates are equally as bad as each other and therefore, what's the point of me voting because um, I don't like either of them. In fact, literally last week, I was standing in line waiting for a crepe in Hampstead and I couldn't help but overhear the conversation behind me, which was between two Americans, one of whom said she wasn't voting in the 2020 election because neither candidate was calling her name, neither was her cup of tea. And I was standing in front of her thinking, oh no, that's exactly the type of thinking which gets politicians with more extreme views into power. Because by not giving your vote to the less bad candidate, you're effectively, uh, you're effectively giving away their vote to the worst candidate. And I agree, it's a problem that should be addressed The fact that so many people feel as though there's no one in politics uh, who speaks to them. But I think this common example of when people don't vote shows how actually by avoiding making a decision, by not choosing one side or the other, you're actually making things a lot worse. And so just to uh, rant a little bit, vote, vote, vote. Yeah, I agree with the both of you. I think sometimes it's even selfish not to take an action because you're scared of offending someone. Because a lot of the time, by not taking an action because you're scared of offending people, you're not addressing the problem. And a lot of the time, you're actually actually actively making these people's lives, who you're trying not to offend, worse. So at the end of the day, they might not be offended, but they'll probably be living worse lives or be more annoyed at you precisely because you've done nothing to try and improve the situation, even if that meant you had to throw one group under the bus. And I just thought of another example of how by not actually addressing problems, you're making it worse. And that is in marriage. And I think Jasmine and I, we talked about this in our love episode, which you should definitely check out, by the way. But um, part of the reason so many marriages these days are ending in divorce, I think it's something like 50%, is because partners are too scared to actually bring a problem, confront a problem and bring it to light in the relationship that um, they let these problems grow up. uh, uh, They let these problems build up beneath the surface until it finally explodes and the relationship ends in divorce. If you can take away anything from this episode, it's that you should always address a problem head on, which is better than just ignoring a problem problem and leaving it to blossom. That doesn't necessarily mean you should be impulsive or reckless, but I think it's always worth trying to tackle the problem, or not necessarily even tackling it, but just talking about it. As soon as you address a problem and admit, okay, that's a problem, you're already one step closer to making the problem go away. And I guess I can also stress the importance of communication here, uh, especially in terms of relationships. I feel like I just had a competition with myself. Um, How many times can I use the word problem in one sentence? 
And there are countless examples in history, such as Louis XVI not doing anything about the terrible taxation system in France out of fear of offending the nobles and those lower down in society, the third estate. Um, but instead, he ended up annoying both, um, which then united them and led to the French Revolution. Of course, I am oversimplifying matters here, but it did eventually get his head chopped off. So the lesson learned here is do not abstain lest you are beheaded. Okay, so we've talked about why abstaining is not always morally correct, but of course that begs the question, why are we correct? You know, someone else may be saying the exact opposite thing, why is our opinion any more valid than theirs? To answer this question, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent, but I hope you'll see how it relates to the original question. So I remember my Latin teacher mentioning why Socrates hated democracy, and the way that he explained this was by using the metaphor of a ship. He said that if you're going on a ship, who would you want leading the ship as as the ship captain? And of course it would be someone who knows about navigation and seafaring. And so he said similarly, if you have a group of people voting for the leader of the country, you should have a group of people who are well-informed and have all the information that they need to make those kinds of decisions. So the the reason this relates to the original question is that I think the reason that not just ours, but anyone's opinion and anyone's morality and values are valid is because they've thought deeply about it and they have criticised it and questioned it and they have got all the information necessary, which is why to be able to always justify your morality, you constantly have to question it. Yeah, I think that our listeners definitely should take away the importance of always questioning your morals. And another interesting question is, do you think that people should be blamed if their morals have been indoctrinated into them from a young age by their parents? And more specifically, is there a certain age where you think it becomes unacceptable to blame your morals on your parents, but rather you have to start taking responsibility for your own beliefs? Kinnery, what do you think? If someone is doing some questionable things because that's how they were raised and that's what their parents always told them to think like, then I suppose you can let them off the hook up to a certain age. Because I think from the age when you join secondary school, it is your responsibility to think for yourself, to seek out other views and to criticise your opinions. If you use the reasoning, oh, how could they have known better? That's how they were raised. That's what their parents always told them. Then you can end up justifying some pretty awful things and it's a slippery slope from there. Also, that kind of reasoning is basically saying, how can you expect people to think for themselves? They'll just agree with what they've been told their whole life. Of course you can expect people to think for themselves. They have to think for themselves, otherwise nothing will ever change. Once again, we can refer to history to illustrate this point. Back in the 19th century, it was pretty normal to be racist and sexist. In fact, that was what society told you to be like. It was a truth universally acknowledged, reference intended. But it took a group of people who actually went against the social norm and thought for themselves, which led to things like the abolition movement and the fight for women's suffrage. And I'm glad to say that we have come a long way from the 19th century, although we have not totally destroyed those demons just quite yet. But the point is that if you can't think for yourself, then you're basically stopping any progress being made. There must be truths that are universally acknowledged today that m- maybe in 
a few years' time, people will be shocked that we thought like this, and it's going to take people who can question their views and those of those and those of others around them that will bring about this change. So basically, the point is you have the responsibility to constantly question and criticize your views. Yes, and just to interject here, um, there's a nice little German idiom about politics that we learned in our German class. You are. You can either be the Vogel or the Frosch. So in German, Vogel means bird, and Frosch means frog. And you might be thinking, what does that have to do with politics? But uh, birds. Think about. Think about it. Birds can fly around and see all of the different perspectives. They can see what's going on on all sides of them. Whereas uh, frogs or the Frosch can only see what is directly in front of it because its eyes won't allow it to see um, other perspectives. And when I learned these words, I thought, oh, that's, that's an interesting idiom. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I also started thinking, is there ever a point when it becomes acceptable to be closed-minded? I know that a lot of people would say it's definitely better to be the fog or the bird because one should always be exposed to different values. Um, but is there ever a time when it's okay to be closed-minded? And particularly thinking about whether there's a divide, whether there's a divide between values and politics. So is it, for instance, all right to be closed-minded when it comes to key moral values, but not all right to be closed-minded when it comes to politics in terms of the economy, for for example, or? Are political opinions in themselves values and therefore um, there's not much distinction between values and politics and one should be open-minded about everything? I don't know. It's just interesting to ask ask yourself these questions. Personally, I do err on the side of it's better to be open-minded, but there are definitely things that I would not even consider changing my opinion about, even if I heard the other side's argument. So I don't think society should be so quick to condemn those who are narrow-minded, because actually a lot of us are probably much more like the frog than we (laughs) realise. The question you posed about the link between politics and values is very interesting, and I am of the belief that they are inherently linked. Um, Even policies on things like the economy, which seem impersonal, I believe, are still to do with your morals, because they're about how you believe the world should be run, which is to do with your fundamental beliefs in how society could better itself and cater to everyone's needs. Of course, some people's values are not necessarily to cater to every everyone's needs. Um, Slightly scandalous, but I suppose I must stay true to the title. And as for the question of the bird versus the frog, I disagree with you, Ali. I do not think there are any circumstances under which it is justifiable to be the frog. I think the situation that you have described is not being the frog, i.e. being closed-minded, rather it's simply being firm in your beliefs. And I think if you've surveyed all the options, if you've been open-minded, done your research, and you've picked what you believe in, what your opinion is, then it is perfectly justifiable to be firm in that belief. Um, But if you're being what the frog represents, which is closed-minded, then that suggests that you haven't um, surveyed all the options, you don't know everything that there is to know. And if you don't know everything that there is to know, then that means you have no way of knowing that your belief is 
is right. And so if you're still defending it and refusing to change your belief, then that's not justifiable because you haven't done your research, which is why I think you should always, always be the bird. But I think it is important to note that just because someone may hold questionable opinions about certain things doesn't necessarily make them a bad person, in my opinion. I mean, there are, there are questionable opinions, like I like pineapple and pizza, and there are questionable <laughs> opinions that believe I fundamentally don't believe that people like you should exist. So I think it's always... The, the, the problem, I think, with politics, especially in today's climate, is that somehow... People, what I consider to be basic human rights are now political things. I would usually say that political opinions don't make anyone a bad person. Like your, I don't think your views on the economy make you a bad person. But if you're claiming that, I don't know... Certain people don't have the right to vote or exist because of things that they can't change about themselves, is this a hot take to say that I would think you're not a good person because you go against my core moral values? Yeah, in, in summary, let's pose this to our listeners. How much should we judge a person based on their views? So now we can return to the question asked at the beginning of the podcast, which was, was what Anna Karenina did moral or immoral? For those of you who haven't read the book, the general plot is that Anna leaves a cold, frigid, arranged marriage with her husband Karenin for a turbulent love affair with Vronsky. Um, with whom she has the time of her life and she's in temporary bliss. But let's just say it does not really end well. Um, in order to go with Vronsky, she has to leave behind her son, which is devastating for her son and also for her. So the question is, was she morally justified in leaving her son to go be with the man she loved? Yeah, so personally, I think that Anna Karenina was justified in leaving her son to pursue her own happiness because I am of the belief that almost always, it is more complicated when parents and children become involved, but almost always you should prioritise your own happiness above others. Is that selfish? Yes, but I think it's justified. And personally, if it were me, I wouldn't want to be in a marriage with a cold, heartless man who only cares about the economy of Russia, I would much rather pursue a good-looking Vronsky and have the time of my life. And it is horrible that that meant that she had to leave her son. But at the end of the day, I think she did what she had to do. I'm more uncertain on this because the more we talk about how she wanted to pursue her happiness, the whole point was that she wasn't even that happy with Vronsky because she, she had to leave her son behind, right? If she was she couldn't have been truly happy, but she prioritised her happiness in a love affair rather than happiness she could have had being with her child. And I personally think that a lot of the time, in fact, most of the time, I guess, in opposite to Groves, that I think if you are in a parent and child relationship, a parent does have a very large responsibility to their child. Although this is, I guess, where intentions versus actions come in because she did repent and she was very, very guilty or she felt very, very guilty about what she did, which you might argue, had she been, you know, completely cold and been like, screw my son, let me go off with this man, you know, it would have been a lot worse. And I can see why it definitely makes her actions a lot more understandable, but I don't know if they justify them completely because I don't, I don't think anything is morally, like absolutely morally correct. And I don't definitely think that saying that this was morally justified or morally correct would be a bit of a stretch. 
I think the fact that Anna does repent um, is significant and it affects my opinion of her because uh, I think intentions do matter. Um, In fact, I think they matter just as much as the actions because if you're trying to determine if someone is a good person, then you, you want to determine that by whether they want good for the world and whether they can bring good into the world. Uh, but not everyone always has the ability to bring this good into the world, but as long as they want to, um, and as long as that is their intention, then to me, they are a good person. Um, and I think Anna's intentions with um, leaving her son were not to cause him pain um, and, you know, destroy everything. I think it truly was because she wanted to chase her own happiness and it totally was not her intention for it to turn out this way. Um, and also an example of this, a good example would be in The Good Place, um, where you do not get into The Good Place um, unless you had good intentions whilst doing your actions, which is why Tahani doesn't get in. But The Good Place also agrees that actions are important because the whole reason Chidi is in The Bad Place is the opposite to Tahani's. He has the best intentions, but he can never translate them into actions. And in fact, his actions cause more harm than good because he is always trying to do have the best of intentions. So I think the, the the conclusion is, as always, both are important, you know? Like, doing good is important, but also wanting to do good, and that being the reason for your doing good is also just as important. Her repentance makes her actions more morally justifiable and more understandable, but I don't think, because just because it's more morally justifiable, I don't think, as a whole, her actions are still morally justifiable. Like, if she had to, chosen to stay with Karenin, she'd be in an unhappy marriage, but she'd get, like, a little bit of happiness by being... Well, not probably not a little bit. She'd get some happiness from being with her son. Going with Vronsky, she gets, I think, more happiness. She gets a lot of happiness from being in a relationship that she, in which she's actually in love with the person that she's with. Um, and so minus the like sadness of being away from her son but I think that like the net happiness of being with Vronsky was higher so I think it was morally justifiable for her to leave and can I bring in one of my k-dramas into the equation Uh, so I am a hearty fan of the show weightlifting fairy weightlifting fairy Kim Bok Chu and one of the plot lines is about uh, Chong Jun Young whose mother left him when he was eight or something to move to Canada to pursue the man she loved in Canada and left him behind in Korea. And like Anna Karenina, she felt horrible about this and she did really, really miss her son. But the reason why I think she was way less morally justifiable than Anna Karenina was because she could have taken her son with her to Canada. And quite frankly, I don't understand why she didn't. Uh, I think it was cruel of her not to. Whereas Anna Karenina didn't have the choice to take her son with her, with Vronsky, because of the times she lived in and her husband, who had control over her, didn't let her take her son. Down with the patriarchy! So Anna Karenina had to choose between romantic love and familial love, whereas Zheng Junyang's mother didn't. And so I think it's important when considering how morally justifiable these characters are to consider the times they live in and the wider context as well. So I hope you've enjoyed this discussion on selfishness, morality and a geek out session over Anna Karenina. A few things I hope you've taken away are asking yourself whether you think you're selfish and whether all humans are inherently selfish, that you shouldn't always abstain and that it is not always morally correct and also most importantly that you have the responsibility to always question your morals. I also hope that we have inspired you to read Anna Karenina. It was a very long read but I must say I think it was worth it and if you do 
decide to read it, please let us know where you stand on the debate. All right, Kinnery. Over and out. <laughs>